0: Good morning. Glad you're here with us today. Hey, I just want to take a second before we begin and just say how proud I am of Aaron and Melanie. Uh, they're a perfect example of what, what we're looking for here. God has, has done something in their lives, and they want to share that with other people. God has radically changed something about them, and they came to me and said, Hey, we want to do this class. And so that's kind of what we want to see here the Lord inspiring you to do something, and then you inspire others to do that as well. And so, hey, I'm I'm happy to be here with you today. Question for you as we begin here. Have you ever fallen in love? Anyone ever fallen in love in here, right? You know what I'm talking about that 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 deep visceral feeling in your gut. You guys remember like the sweaty palms and the and the heart palpitating and the, the cheeks flushing. My, my, I'm a ginger, so my cheeks are always kind of flush. But but that, that feeling of falling in love. And, and here's the thing. Here's what happens when you love someone. You'll go to great lengths to show them that you love them. Right. I mean I mean you'll you'll drive for hours just to be together. You ever done that before? Driven hours, just to see someone for a short period of time. You'll stay up late and talk on the phone, even though you hate talking on the phone, right? Or, or you'll walk in the rain, or in, in our case, when we were in college, in the sprinklers on Old Main Lawn, and it's not annoying, it's romantic, right? Or, or you'll willingly spend a small fortune on this person, because you cherish them, you value them, you Loved them. You ever been there? You ever been there? For me, it was 12 years ago, and when I left her house, I felt like that little kid who'd gotten into the cookie jar, you know what I'm saying? Like giddy and nervous and joyful, and when I walked out, I'm pretty sure I did a heel click, like those Mary Poppins <laughs> heel clicks, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and that night, Katie and I had just talked, and we decided, hey, we're going to test the waters. We're going to see if a relationship is something that, that's viable for us, because I had been crazy about her for years, major crush factor, but, but she never really had any feelings for me. But now she was willing to, uh, to test this thing out. And so our first date was on January 14th, 2005. And because I was already convinced that I loved her, I knew that I needed to go to great lengths to show her that I loved her. I knew that I needed to go to Great Leagues to demonstrate my affection for her. So I planned this first date that some might call extravagant or over the top. And I decided to take her to this restaurant in Fayetteville called Taste of Thai. a bit of Taste of Thai. Love this restaurant. Didn't know it at the time. It was her favorite restaurant. Yes, right. And and at dinner, we're eating, we're hanging out, we're having a good time. And at one point during dinner, she starts weeping. And I'm like, and uh, it wasn't because she was on a date with me, it's because she was telling the story of, of these, these women that she met on this mission trip to Indonesia, Malaysia, Tibet. She was weeping over these women steeped in poverty and legalism, people who needed Jesus. And, and after dinner, I took her up to Mount Sequoia, not the cross where everybody makes out, but, but the backside of the mountain, there is this, these, these trails that, that you can hike on, and and I was taking her to this this trail because at the end of this trail, there was this fire pit with these logs placed around where you could sit and talk. And I had a couple of my buddies, Ron Sweeney's one of them. They hiked down and started a fire for us and left hot chocolate, and the scene was set, right? <laughs> and so we bundle up and we start walking down this, this this path, and we get about halfway down, and she sees the glowing orange embers of the fire. And I could tell the extravagance is starting to pay off a little bit. And, and, and we get even closer to the fire, and she sees these glowing things that are lining the ground. And there were these glow stick bracelets that I bought. That uh, I, I had bought some index cards, attached glow stick bracelets, and wrote things that I loved about Katie on these things. And so you're beautiful. You're kind. I love when you sing. And, and, and so as we approached each one of these bracelets, I picked it up. I'm embarrassing her like crazy right now. I picked it up and read these things to her, and then her heart melted like wax before me, right? (laughs) Just kidding. She did tell me that later on something happened that night that whereas she had no feelings for me before, God shifted her heart. He changed her heart. And here's the point. When you love someone, you'll go to great lengths to show them that you love them, right? You'll do extravagant things. You'll drive for hours. You'll stay up late. You'll talk on the phone. You'll spend a fortune. When you love someone, you just can't help it. You just can't help. It oozes out of you. And so this morning and and next week as well, we are taking a break from our study in the book of Hebrews. We're hitting the pause button on Hebrews, and we want to talk about our mission as a church, and that mission is this, to love God passionately And to love people tangibly. To love God passionately and to love people tangibly. This is our primary calling. This is the essence of what we as a church believe we are called to do in order to impact our community and our world. The way we do ministry is primarily filtered through this lens of vertical love for God leading to horizontal love for our neighbor. Okay, And so this morning, we're we're talking about the first part of that mission, which is falling in love with God, to passionately love God. Because when you love someone, you'll go to great lengths to show them that you love them. You'll do extravagant things, and we want our passionate love for God to drive us to do extravagant things for him. That's our mission as a church. Let me pray. Jesus, be here with us. We invite you into this place. We invite you into this space. We thank you, God, that you are alive and active in this world. This is not just another Sunday morning uh, meeting in an elementary school cafeteria, but we get to touch the heart of God in this place this morning. So show up. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you brought them, to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 38. It'll also be on the screen. This is a section of Scripture known as the Great Commandment, and this is where we, we derive our mission as a church. Let's read this together. Verse 34, here's what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this, and he said, Teacher, which, which is the, the greatest commandment in the law? To which Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang, hinge on these two commands. What's going on here? See, rabbis had had identified 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. Sounds like a burden, right? 248 positive commands. Do this. This is good. Do this stuff. And 365 negative commands. Don't do this. And since nobody could possibly keep all of those laws, they divided them into two categories. What they called heavy commands or, or light commands. And Pharisees taught, hey, we need to take all the commands really seriously, but the heavy ones, we really need to take seriously. And so this Pharisee approaches Jesus, and it's kind of like he's asking, hey, which of the heavy laws do you think is heaviest? What is the heaviest of the heavies? What do you think is most important for us to know or do in order to follow God? What's the greatest commandment? It's a pretty monumental question, right? It's a big question to ask God. And Jesus could have emphasized a number of things here, Sabbath-keeping or idolatry or covetousness. Yet when he answers the question, he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy 6-5 known as the Shema. And this was a prayer that Jews recited twice a day, every morning and every evening. And they would have known exactly what he was talking about when he said this. And so he answered this monumental question by saying the first and greatest command is To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he followed it up and said, uh, there's another command, a second command. It's second but similar. And he quotes Leviticus 19 saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And, And what Jesus is saying here is all 613 laws can be summed up in these two very simple commands. Love God and love people. Every other law is just an application of one of those two ideas, to love God or to love people, this is the irreducible minimum. this is the secret sauce. this is the schematic for how to follow God and I want you to notice here because there seems it, it seems like order is important. He clearly says that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. This command is to to take precedence to it 's to be our primary and first Concern Everything else, even the second command, which we'll talk way more about next week, even the second command necessarily flows from this reality of the first one. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And so I think this begs the question, how do we do that? How do we love God? How do we love God passionately? Three things for you. Number one. I think we, 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 we love God first and foremost by understanding that he is a lover. He is a lover. And we can't really love him unless we realize how much he has first loved us. Let me read a few verses for you. Isaiah 54, 5 says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name isaiah sixty two five a young man as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder, capital B, will marry you as a bridegroom, rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you zephaniah three hundred seventeen the Lord your God is with you. He is a mighty warrior, he saves, he will take great delight in you, and in his love he will no longer rebuke you, but he will sing over you he 's this warrior singing God, this wild lover who pursues his people. Hosea 2, 13 and 14 describes God as this husband who pursues his adulterous wife who's been cheating on him, chasing after false gods. And he promises to do this, to allure her and to lead her into the wilderness so that he can speak tenderly to her, to buy her back from from adultery. There's this song to this old Derek Webb song that says, I am so easily satisfied by the call of lovers so less wild. So we get raptured and raptured by these lesser lovers, and God's saying, I'm a husband who will pursue you, even though you're chasing after lesser lovers. And so much of the Bible describes God in this passionate, romantic, emotional language as a groom, as a as a wild lover. Who relentlessly pursues his people. And I don't think that we can love God passionately until we understand that God passionately loves us, until you get the idea that God actually loves you. 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. And it's kind of like when you are in elementary school, you guys remember being in elementary school? I've got a seven-year-old. He's in second grade. And, and when you're in elementary school and you find out someone has a crush on you, you guys remember that? Ever have, you ever lived that story? And, and they write notes to you. Do you like me? Check yes or no. And, and, they, and they, they, they tell their friends about it and they're giggling. They send emissaries to you to let you know somebody likes you. Their friends are on the way, Right. And regardless of how you felt before you knew they liked you, when you find out someone likes you, you know what that does? Well, maybe I like them. (laughs) And you're like ten times more likely to like this person just because they like you. (laughs) Like? (laughs) And it's similar with God. If we could just see how much he loves us, how much more inclined would we be to love him back? Amen? John 15, 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. Imagine this with me, if you will, that how much does the Father love the Son? From, from eternity past, you have this extravagant, triune love, God pouring out this love from Father to Son. And what he's saying is, you're loved like that. That with the same love, Quantity and with the same quality with which the Father loves the Son, you are loved like that. When, when you recognize that you're loved, it, it changes something. And so my question for you on this point is really simple. Are you 100% sure right now, not so much that, that God so loved the world, but, but that God so loved you? I mean, do you get that? That God is crazy about you that he absolutely loves you he went to great lengths to demonstrate it to pour it out extravagantly on you do you understand that God loves you and not only that that he likes you and and, and not some future version of you you know whenever I get my act together or whenever I get out of debt or whenever I stop sinning no God likes you. Romans 5 8 says even while we're yet sinners Christ did what he died for us. <laughs> and so before we can love God passionately, we have to understand that God is a lover. Next, how do we love God passionately? We have to love him with our whole heart. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Other gospels say, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, your strength. And, and the idea that this is conveying is that we have to love him with every facet of our personhood. Every facet of our, this is all consuming. Every fiber of our being, heart, soul, mind, strength. It's not limited to areas of your life that you feel comfortable loving him in. He's saying, I want all of you. Total access, total authority. And and really the, the best illustration I could think of was marriage. It's, it's marriage. When, when Katie and I got married, she received access to me to all of me to every area of my life she had access to my bank account when we got married and and, and we mixed and we mingled and and she now owns everything that I owned which by the way was nothing (laughs) when we got married at one point I tried to sell plasma to buy a wedding ring I was like it'll be a cool illustration someday it didn't work out and so I had nothing (laughs) or my schedule I, I don't make decisions about my schedule that impact my family without first consulting my wife. She has a say in that now. Or, or my texts, my passwords, my emails. I have nothing to hide from this woman that I promised to love until death do us part. She has access to all of me. Complete vulnerability. My hopes, my dreams, my plans. Katie is an integral part of my present, but also my future. And I want her to be. Everything is now filtered through the reality of my relationship with my wife, and, and guess what? God wants you to love him like that. He, he wants you to love him with that same kind of love. He wants us to filter everything through this lens of our relationship with him, how we treat our spouses, how we spend our money, what we do with our free time, where we work, how we vote, what we consider good, what we consider evil. Our relationship with him should have primacy in our lives. I I love how Lewis puts it, as always. He, He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is kind of important. It can't be kind of important. If Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he was going to do, there is no mushy middle thing going on here. He requires all of you, all of you. Matthew 13, 44 says it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold everything he had and bought the field. Or Paul says it like this in, in Philippians 3. But whatever were gains to me, my reputation, my education, my promotion, my net worth, my retirement, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish. The word is excrement compared to knowing Christ. Infinite value, a worth that is worthy of losing everything. Infinite importance, a treasure that's worth selling everything for. And so my question for you here is, is, do you love Jesus with your whole heart? (laughs) With your whole heart? Is he the primary lens through which you make every decision that you make in your life? And if not, why? 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 What what area are you still holding on to that he's wanting you to let go of? How do we love God passionately? First, we have to understand that God is a lover. Second, we have to understand that we have to love him with our whole heart. Last point, how do we love God passionately? We have to experience gratitude. Genuine, heart-shaking gratitude. Gratitude. And that's not something that you can manufacture on your own. You ever try to manufacture thankfulness? Oh, I'm just so thankful right now. you like, you can't manufacture that on your own. Let me, let me tell you a story to illustrate my point. There was this, this Pharisee who, who asked Jesus over to his house for dinner. And so Jesus, being the kind of person who rarely turned down an invitation, he, he went to this man's house and he sat down. And and as he was sitting there eating, a sexually immoral, promiscuous woman who had a reputation in town heard that Jesus was there. And and she shows up. She decides to show up. And, and, And when she walks in, she's carrying this large, beautiful alabaster jar filled with some very, very expensive perfume. Perfume so rare that to replace it, it would, it, would, it would cost an entire year's salary if you lost this stuff. And the woman, as she walked in, she walks over to Jesus, and she kneels down behind him at his feet, and she just starts losing it, weeping, tears streaming down her face and falling on this Savior's feet. And, and as they fell, she starts wiping his feet with her hair and, and then she starts doing something even crazier. She she starts kissing his feet like she she couldn't help herself. This extravagant display going to great lengths to demonstrate the love that she had. And you can imagine the scene, right? Like like this would have been quite quite a display. What what would your response been had you been there? If you had a friend over for dinner and someone walked in and started doing this, how would you, how would you act? Would you have maybe had a little judgment or, or some suspicion or gossip? Maybe you would have thought Jesus is in some kind of relationship with this woman. Or, or maybe your reaction would have been the same as the Pharisees. Here's what he said. When he saw this, he thought to himself, if, if this man, if Jesus, if he was really a prophet... He would know the kind of person who's touching him right now. She's gross. She's filthy. She's a sinner. And then Jesus, like a good prophet, read his thoughts, and he responded by saying, Simon, called him by name, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. Anytime Jesus says that, by the way, that's, watch out. I have something to say to you. And he told him this story. He said, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and, and 500 pieces of silver to another. And neither of these guys were able to pay back what he loaned them. And, and so this man, you know what he did? He, he, he forgave them both and he canceled their debts. And then Jesus stopped and looked at him and says, who do you suppose loved more after that? And Simon answered, I I, I guess the one who who was forgiven from a larger debt. And Jesus said, you got it. You got it. And then he looked at this guy and, and he said, Simon, look at this woman who's kneeling here. When she entered your house, when I entered your house, you didn't offer me water to wash my feet. But she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She didn't, you didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the common courtesy of oil to anoint my head. Yet she has anointed my feet with this rare, expensive, extravagant display of her affection. And then Jesus said this: Luke seven forty seven. I tell you, her sins, and, and they're many. They're a lot. Her sins have been forgiven, and so she has shown me much love, big love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only only a little love. And the primary difference between this sinful woman and and Simon the Pharisee wasn't that her sins were somehow larger on the scale of sin compared to a holy God. We all know that all sin requires some penalty. If God is infinitely holy, all of our sin is an offense to him, whether you're promiscuous or whether you're prideful. But the, the main difference... Here was, at, was that the sinful, she actually understood that she was sinful, <laughs> that she had a debt, that she needed forgiveness. And so, my question for you here is, is who do you relate to more in this story? Are, are you Simon, who's sitting there kind of making your judgment calls about life, thinking, you know, you basically have your life together, you're pretty good. Or you like this woman who understood she had an extravagant need, and so our mission here at this church is to remind you of a few things. One, you have an extravagant need. If you are here this morning and you don't like to talk about sin or or holiness, like this might not be the right place for you. It might not be the right place for you because we have to know what the sickness is in order to find a cure, right? I mean, we have to understand what's wrong in order to to help make things right. And we also want to remind you of of his extravagant forgiveness. The the word here is grace. That there is a gracious and loving God. And and if you're here this morning and you don't like talking about grace, if you're here and and you would be offended by the thought, by the sight of, of a woman like this showing up, this might not be the right place for you. Because... Jesus attracted people who knew that they needed to be extravagantly forgiven. And he was open enough to love and receive. And I pray that our church is a church like that. I'm one of them, by the way. I've, I am so messed up in certain ways. So that extravagant need, extravagant forgiveness, so that we, like this woman, can pour out extravagant love to this God. That saved us. If you're here this morning and you don't like to be challenged to to think of Jesus as the most vitally important thing in your life, then this might not be the right place for you. This might not be the right place for you. Because we want to challenge you to love God passionately, sacrificial, extravagant love. That word passion is, is this root word, which means suffering. To love so much you're willing to suffer to love so much you're willing to give up something else in order to chase after this God. If you don't get that, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so first we have to understand that God is a lover. We love him with our whole heart. And then we have to experience this genuine gratitude that can only come when we understand how broken we are so that we can pour out extravagant love to this Savior. And so the rest of this morning, we're just going to practice that. We're just going to pray. We're going to cut sermon time short, and we're going to worship and try to cultivate this passionate love for God. That takes primacy, that takes precedent. Everything else flows from that. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a vertical church first, and it will drive everything else that we do so let me end here by by reading this prayer. It's from one of my favorite books. It's by a guy named A.W. Tozer. It's it's a prayer he prays at the end of chapter one of this book. And I just want to pray this over us and read this to us as we transition back into worship. Here's what it says. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love in me. Say to my soul, rise up, my fair one. Come away, then give me the grace to rise and follow up from this misty, Lowland where I have wandered for so long. In Jesus' name.